We are in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding the armor of God, and Ephesians 6 says this, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So, so stand. And you stand by being strong in the Lord, knowing who you are in Christ, knowing what Christ has done for you. He goes over that throughout this letter, but especially in Ephesians 1, he talks about, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He just talks about what Christ has done. And then he says this in verse 10, he set forth this in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Christ is to be the Lord and ruler of all. You stand firm by acknowledging and following Christ as Lord and ruler. And he says later in this chapter, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All things are under his feet. He is Lord of all. Therefore, we have an acute God consciousness and understand that the centrality of Christ and what he's done. Finally, you be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. There's a guy named Leslie Newbigin who was a missionary in India for decades. He was with the Church of Scotland. He wrote some incredibly interesting books, but he says this. He says, when he came back from India after several decades, I saw, he died in 1998, by the way. I saw that someone could use all the language of the Bible, evangelical Christianity, and yet the sinner was fundamentally still the self, and God was only secondary or auxiliary to all that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can slip, can become centered in me and my needs, and not in the glory of God. See, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God is central, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is preeminent. I'm to be strong in the Lord. A man named Jehadis Voss, who taught at Princeton, said this in 1980 or 1891. Uh, he was asked the question, Why is it, what is it about Reformed theology that, that enables tradition, that tradition to grasp the fullness of the Scriptures unlike any other tradition, that which flowed from the Reformation. Here's his answer. Listen to this. Because theology that flows from the Reformation, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, by Scripture alone. Reformation theology took hold of the Scriptures at their deepest root. The root idea which served as the key to unlock the rich treasures of the Scriptures was the preeminence of God's glory, the weightiness, the grandeur of God. 
and the consideration of all that has been created. This all-embracing slogan of Reformed theology is this, the work of grace in the center as a mirror of the glory of God. And so, I, so, so to, to fight this battle, we've got to be strong in the Lord and who He is and what He's done. And in the strength of His might, we've got to be God-centered, God-saturated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've, we've got to be people who glory in the goodness of God. See, the devil has a lot of points of tension. He's a liar and he's an accuser. In the first book of the Bible, he looks at Eve and he says to Eve, has God really said, has he really said this? Surely you won't die. Questioning her need for the living God, a Savior. That's one extreme. The other extreme, which I think is much prevalent, is he accuses us. And he leads us to the point of saying, you've done this and this and this, therefore there is no hope. Both are extremes, both are lies, both are from the pit of hell. Example, uh, let's say that you encounter the devil and the devil says, I've got a book of what you've done this wrong. It's a big, thick book, small writing. And he just reads it out. And you stand there and say, yeah, I did that. I had that thought. I've done that. I've done that. I've said that. And he goes through and he says, and you say guilty. And he says, okay. He says, that's just the first book. I've got another book right here. It's an even bigger book, even smaller print. And he goes through and he says, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this. He said, you're right. You're right. I did that. And then he says, I've got another. He says, just stop. Just stop. Every time you pick up a book and start reading what I've done, it just underscores the fact that God is gloriously good because he has forgiven me all of my sin by the work of Jesus. I, I, I bear it and I sin no more. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me so that I might walk in the freedom and joy of Christ. Christ bore my sins in his body. Be gone, Satan. So, so we've got to be strong in the Lord. And that's why Paul says, take up the whole armor of God. The whole armor. You don't pick and choose. It's the whole armor. We're going to be discussing the next few weeks. The whole armor. And then the first piece is the belt of truth. Now, in the day of the Christian warrior in the New Testament, there were people who wore long flowing robes, and, and a belt allowed you to take the long flowing robes and bind them up around your waist so you would have security and freedom of movement. That's what the Word of God does. It gives us security and freedom as we walk through life. You see, instead of, instead of grappling, it just holds everything in place. It's absolutely essential illustration. I, I ran uh, sprints in high school. You know, one of the great things about getting old is that you get smarter and faster as you remember the past. Now, uh, all of us, why did you make your SAT? Oh, somewhere around 1,400. Well, it was within 500 points of 1,400, you know. Or, why, why did you run the 100 meters in? Well, you know, I can't quite remember. But it was anyway, but I ran. I, uh, and I did okay. I did okay. But there was one guy I developed a friendship with who ran. We ran to get against each other our sophomore, junior, and senior year at least four times because we had dual meets and we were in the same conference and same district. So at least four times I ran against him. He was a, 
He was an outstanding athlete, African-American, wonderful, great guy. He was recruited by, by many Division I schools. I knew where those schools were located. That's as far as I got. So, but he, he was fast. I never came close. I never came close. He was good. He was a, he was a state champion. I was not close. Part of the problem is I, you know, I came out of the blocks like a pregnant cow. I just stumbled. I just, I, I, about 40 yards, I started picking up speed and did well. But if you've ever coached, the first 30 yards is what counts, not 40. I mean, anyways, he would just kill me. So the last time we ever ran together in a dual meet our senior year, you know, we've been talking. And so took, took off. Same thing. But about, about halfway down, I started picking up on him. And I, I kept getting closer, and I thought, I can't believe this is happening. And I hit the tape, and I missed beating him by just that much. And I went, I must have set a school record, because I've never come that close to this guy. And they called out the times, and it was better than normal, but it wasn't a school record. And so I went over to him, and we start, he started laughing. I said, you know, did you see what happened to me? I said, no. He said, at about 50 yards, the elastic in my shorts broke. <laughs> And this is a true story. He said, my shorts came down to here, and I had to gather them up and run 50 yards like this. So I still didn't beat him when he was doing the one-legged race on me. But <laughs> it's a great See, the belt, the belt holds things in place. See? The belt holds things in place. The belt of truth gives us security and freedom. So this is my thesis. Thank you. My, my thesis, thank you, Lord. My thesis is this. If, if, if I study Scripture, take in Scripture, apply Scripture, meditate, think in the context of community, then the Word of God, rightly heard and applied, heals and transforms us. I believe that with all my heart. The Word of God heals and transforms, as, as I read in, the, in my life, in the context of the community of, of the church and the history of the church. It transforms and it heals. And, and so the, the cry of, of our heart should be, Speak, O Lord. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me and, and take this word and inflame it in my life. Now, here's the difference. There's a guy named Schleimacher, who's a German. And in the late 1800s, he and his school of thought transformed the way people thought because Schleimacher said it makes no difference about the, 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 the cognitive understanding of a document or what really counts is that you have an experience of the God who cannot be defined except by you. And so he says that, that, that he, he said, here's a quote, he said that, so he believed in that which was intuitional, mystical, and immediate. It's the experience. And that flows against everything that the Bible teaches and the church is taught. One of the great, so, so he said, you don't need a word, you need an experience. And we say, no, we experience the living God through his book. We experience the living God through his word. And our cry is, come Holy Spirit, because unless the Holy Spirit takes this word and inflames it in our heart, 
We don't study it correctly. That's why John Calvin is called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Because Calvin spoke often of this. In fact, this is what he says. He says that Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this song, this is something of a recent song that says, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. And later the song goes, Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And, and, and so, so what, what we cry out is, 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 come by your spirit and take this book, take this sure word from God and make it flaming truth in our lives. The illuminating power of the Holy Spirit that takes truth and makes it alive. And so the, the devil has many assaults on this belt of truth and this word of truth. Let me mention two. Let me make an application. One assault is that he blinds us to the beauty and majesty and glory of Christ and living a life of obedience in him. He just blinds us to it. We know from 2 Corinthians that it says that, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that's unbelievers. But, but I believe that the devil works hard to, to blind us to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God and the, the joy of following after him. Um, some of us had coaches that would say things like this. My job is to get you to to do what you do not want to do and to like what you do not like to do. That's a terrible way to live. That's a terrible slogan. And yet I think sometimes we look at people and say, you know, just grind it out. Just grind it out. And I'm saying, no, taste and see that the Lord is good. T taste and see the absolute promises of God. T taste and see what Romans 8 says when it says those who before knew we also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants us to be like Jesus. Taste and see what Christ meant when he says in Matthew 7 verse 11, and, and you though you are evil parents know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. John 8, where Jesus says, If you continue in my words, then you are my disciples indeed, and the, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Taste and see the maturation that comes in Ephesians 4 when he says he gave teachers to the church that we might grow up and, 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 be, and be full of stature in Christ and not like children that are tossed here and fro by the waves and the winds as we speak the truth in love. Taste and see the goodness. And I said, God, do not let the adversary blind us to the wonder of the transforming power of God in Jesus Christ. Are you tasting it? The second attack is that I think he, he pushes us sometimes into be mere information gatherers instead of disciples who are panting for transformation. We, we, we learn things, we learn concepts, but, but we're not panting for transformation. 
when I panted, God used me. God changed me. God used me to be a blessing to those around me. In Luke chapter 8, Christ is talking about hearing the word well. And he says, be very careful how you hear the word of God. And he says, the parable of the sower, you know what he says, that the seed was freely broadcast. And he says, some seed just fell and the birds of the air came and scooped it up and ate it. He says, that represents the devil and his work. Some, some seed fell on soil, but it wasn't good soil. And so it sprang up and it had no rootage and it quickly withered. And some, some seed fell on pretty good soil, but as it grew up, it was choked by briars and thorns and thistles. And he says that represents the, the cares of this world, the pursuit of riches, and the desire for pleasure. He says that just chokes the word of God in your life. There, and there are many of us here today who, man, the, the cares of this world, good and bad, are just choking us. We're busier now than we've ever, ever been. All these labor-saving devices have just made the speed of life exponentially faster. We have the pursuit of riches, just if I can get to that next level, or the going for pleasure, just, and, and, we've, and, and that chokes the Word of God in our lives. I was thinking earlier this week, I was praying through this, and I thought, you know, the cares of this world, and, and you know, I, I love basketball. I could care less about March Madness. My teams have all got beat. I told somebody last week, I said, do you know how, much, how many hours I have saved because Duke and North Carolina got drummed out? I mean, countless hours. Now, if your team's in it, God bless you. But I, don't, I, I could care less about this than the Stanley Cup, which means there's nothing in me that likes this, you know. Nothing. But you just, you just multiply that times time after time after time after time. And it chokes the word. But then he says this. This is an astounding statement. I love this. Yeah, get there a second. As for that, that's in the good soil that bore fruit, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And I just sat back and I started thinking about people that I've known for years who are bearing fruit, who are going for it, who are serving people, who are representing Christ, who care about non-believing people without Jesus. And I, I said, these are people who just receive the Word of God week after week, day after day, with an honest and good heart. There's no double-mindedness there. They're, they're just who they are, and they, and, and they live their life with great patience. There's no magic formula. But an honest and good heart with patience. They, they, they hear the Word to be transformed. They hear the word to be like Christ. And, and that's why you know, our purpose statement as a church is equipping people. We want to know the Bible. We want to know truth. We want to be involved in Bible study, systematically thinking, panting to know more of God. Equipping people to pursue Christ passionately. We're not just information gatherers. We're worshipers. We're people that live with the end in view. We realize that life is a vapor and that it's here today and gone tomorrow. And so we live with intentionality and purpose to impact the cultures of this world and the generations to come. That's, who, that's what we want to be. 
to take the word and by the power of the Spirit to, to understand and apply. Augustine said this. Augustine died in 430. He says, so anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them but cannot by his understanding build up this double love, the double love of God and neighbor has not yet succeeded in his understanding of them. Augustine says, if you're studying the Bible and you don't come away with, with a double love, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not studying the Bible all right. Wow. And so that, that's why the psalmist in Psalm 71 makes this statement. Verse 17, O, o God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all of those to come. He says, God, you've taught me. You've been good. But, but God, even now as an older man with gray hair, as I get there, as I... As, 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 let me not forget that I am to proclaim your great name to the coming generations. That's what you called me to do. Don't let me float. Don't let me skim. Let me go strong. Let me finish well. Let me realize that, that I am responsible to pass on the baton. I was in the gym enjoying their worship just a few minutes ago. And a young lady, delightful young ladies, husbands in our praise band came in. First Sunday with their little baby. I mean, little baby, maybe four or five weeks old in a stroller. Wow. Without God, let us be faithful for, so this child can hear the gospel. Don't let us minimize or cut back, but let us pant. Holy Spirit, come illumine this word. Make application to this heart, to the glory of your name and the welfare of those around me. Let, let me be that type of person. So I'm going to make an application statement now, and um, I want to do it gently, but I want to speak to this. So this week we had a firestorm in the evangelical community. If you haven't heard, uh, there was a group. There's a group called World Vision that's been wonderfully used to the Lord. They do relief to underprivileged and destitute people around the world, and as they do for years, they've preached the gospel, founded by some very godly people. In fact, their chief spokesman for years was a man named Carl F.H. Henry, who is undoubtedly one of the finest thinkers of the 20th century church, a man who is a strong, strong biblical champion um, about the Christian world and life view. E excellent. Died just a few years ago as a very old man, wonderful man. But anyway... It's good that he's dead because he would be very distraught right now. So World Vision, this um, billion dollar, really almost a billion dollar organization, met last week and their, their board. Let me just say this. This is dealing with homosexuality. So We should have great compassion for all people who are involved in ongoing unrepentant sin. Because all people who are involved in unrepentant sin without any regards for the things of the Lord, face an eternity of judgment. Okay? So we should have great compassion. What, what, what really causes me almost incredible disgust of spirit 
are Christian leaders who know the truth and don't speak it or who give cover for people who are living in situations that are not honoring to God. And it is a grief to my heart that there are people who stand up and saying that same-sex unions really is not a big deal. It is a big deal. Listen to me. Any ongoing sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman exposes people to an eternity of judgment. Okay? And it's, it's true about theft. Unrepentant thieves go to hell. Okay? Unrepentant coveting people. Uh, so it, but but th- this issue is being just pushed, pushed, pushed by so many people. So this, this evangelical board meant... They met, and, and, and they handed down this policy. They said, from this point forward, World Vision will hire Christians who are in same-sex marriages monogamously. In other words, they're committed to one person of the same sex, and it says Christians. I'm, I says, time out. First of all, that's an unbiblical statement for what I just said. You, you can't see. You've got to get this. We are saved by the work of Christ alone. I don't bring anything to the table. See? Christ and Christ alone. Anything I bring is like, is like dumping rancid meat into a beautiful breakfast. Christ alone. But if I'm truly a converted man by the power of the Holy Spirit, I receive the Holy Spirit. I am being transformed. Do I still struggle with sin? Yes, but I don't stay there unrepentantly. You get it? So works don't save, but works are a statement that I have come to know Jesus. Man, that's so important. That's, man, that's the whole gospel. So you've got to be real careful there. Works, works don't save. Boom. Faith in Christ alone. But if you truly have faith in Christ, there is a change. Okay. Anyway. So they make this statement um, about we're going to do, do this. And I, just as I walked through this and read all these articles, I, there's a guy named Russell Moore who's, who's preached here and who was at Southern Seminary now. He's at an ethics commission in Washington, D.C. And he said this. This is a great line. World vision is a good thing to have unless the world is all you see. That's a great line. So, so I, th- I thought one of the great things about, about being a Christ follower, and, and, and taking this book, which the church has taught throughout the ages, is, is the scripture, is you don't have to always go back to the drawing board. It's the Bible. See, there's, there's one normative, God-honoring practice regarding sexuality, a man and a woman in marriage. Everything else off the table. It limits your options. So, so it's, it's, it's like you're a heating and air-conditioned guy. You own your company. And you've, you've, you've got a system you're put in for a, for, for a family. It's, it's a $30,000 system. It's a big house. And as you haven't given the total bid, you, you go to this house and you see they're driving two $150,000 imports. And it's a huge house. And it's a plush house. And they've got a Citadel sticker on the back of the car, which means they're rich and smart. You know? <laughs> and so you say, instead of charging... 30000 I'm going to charge 55000 because they obviously can't afford it. There's a problem with that. If you're a Christian, the Bible says what? Thou shalt not steal. So you don't do it. Thou shalt not covet. You don't do it. 
There, there's a basic... You don't go back to the drawing board. You say, this is... You speak with compassion. You speak with brokenness. You speak with love, but you speak. So, so they made this decision, and then they um, received a lot of criticism. Um, and it says, before they made the decision, the agency announced that it had prayed about this for years regarding hiring Christians in same-sex marriages. You don't have to pray about that. You see what I'm saying? Well, why, 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 why do you pray about that? I'm praying about leaving my wife. No, you're not. You're an idiot. You're stupid. Sin has made you dumber than a doorknob. Go home. You know, you know pray about this. Well, let's, let's pray about robbing a bank. No, not today. Not this week. Maybe next week. I'm not trying to be cute, but do you see how silly it is? This is George Orwell stuff. So they reversed themselves and they released this statement. And this statement kind of made me as angry as anything else. This is what the chairman of the board said. We are brokenhearted over the pain and confusion we have caused many of our friends who saw this decision as reversal of our strong commitment to biblical authority. How am I supposed to see it? I mean, I was going, I thought, you're, you're, now you're insulting my intelligence. Goes on and says, we ask that you understand that this was never the board's intent. Yeah, it was. Sure, sure it was. But see, that's what happens when you depart. You do double speak. Just speak with grace and dignity and brokenness. So, so we also, we speak... We will always speak with compassion. And I, as I was doing research, I came across this article, interview with a guy named Stephen Mansfield who's written some really good little biographies on, I've read the ones he wrote on George um, Whitfield and William Wilberforce. I think that's it. He's written some others. He wrote a book on the, the faith of President Obama, interviewed Obama. And he, was, he did this interview, he said after he wrote the book on the faith of Barack Obama, he said... Um, he said this. I thought it was very interesting. The question uh, is, how does Obama think Christianly? His answer is, I think he's further along internally toward an evangelical journey while externally continuing to be on the extreme end of the theological and political liberalism. He's willing to talk. He's willing to pray. And then, sure enough, he'll walk right out and make an astonishing statement about gay rights or something that you just can't believe is coming from somebody who reads the Bible. He's a work in progress, and we all are, okay? We all are. But publicly, he's representing the extreme edge of theological liberalism right now. And then the next question is, you're saying that when he came out for same-sex marriage, he was a little torn or at least apologetic to some of his spiritual mentors. He says, yes, one of his key mentors is one of my best friends. He says, he will remain nameless, as he should. One of his main spiritual advisors, with whom I'm good friends, told me later, quote, when I heard that the, on the radio that the president had come out in favor of same-sex marriages, I pulled over and wept because I had no indication that this is where the president was going. I had prayed with him. We talked about this issue. We studied scripture on this issue. I thought he was going the other way. I heard the announcement. I pulled over to the side of the road to weep because I could not keep on driving. 
And just then the phone rang and the president called and said, I know you're disappointed in me. I am sorry. Which is another story altogether. But I thought, that's our response. That's our response. Don't condemn. We weep. And we plead. But church, put on the belt. The generations to come will one day thank you. As the culture drifts, and the culture is drifting, man, it is drifting. And it's not even drifting, it's paddling. Put on the belt. You speak with discipline, you speak with grace, you speak with care, but you speak. And you say, God, by the power of the Spirit, change me. Speak, O Lord. Let's pray. We are thankful today for your mercy in our lives and your goodness, O Lord. Thank you that you and your tender mercy have allowed us to see the beauty of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would let us see the beauty of a transformed life. I pray we'd be people of compassion, people of mercy, people of tenderness, and people of resolve. And Holy Spirit, only you can bring resolve and tears to the same man and the same woman. So do that in us, I pray. In Jesus' name.